It is indeed a tremendous joy and a privilege that we each have today to gather together with the degree of blessing that we so richly and abundantly enjoy. And as we do so today with the appreciation of God's blessings, we certainly have been reminded of a number, by Brother Ted of a number of announcements and things to keep in mind concerning the life here in our congregation as well as those in some surrounding ones. As we contemplate some of those things, may we also keep in mind that we are currently involved in a series of studies on Sunday morning in our, Bible, in our, in our uh, sermon times. And as you can see by the wall on my left, we will continue that series of studies this morning. The Bible and Gender, part number three. And in particular, you might note the subtitle has to do with roles in the church. As we begin that series of studies, or continue that series of studies this morning, let's spend a moment in review, if we might, just rehearsing what has brought us to this point. And as we do that, that will help us be prepared to move forward in our study this morning. You might notice that our opening lesson was such that we reminded ourselves of the sensitivity that might associate to the character of the roles of gender, male and female, in the kingdom of God. And in further, the first thing that we embedded in our mind was the dignity that God has associated with the male as well as with the female. Both are made in God's image. Both bear the very likeness and image of God. And both are bequeathed by God responsibilities that are in fact dignified responsibilities. And thus, there's no indignity or insult associated with either one of the genders from the perspective of the book of God. Then in our second lesson, we notice the distinction that is to be descriptive of male and female. We looked at a number of passages, some found in the Old Testament, others found in the New, and as a part of that study, did we not reach the rather firm realization that God expects the man to look and behave like a man, and he expects the woman to look and behave like a woman. He does not, in fact, look favorably upon those who try to in fact, look opposite their gender, or to behave in a way that would be descriptive more of the other. The same goes for the type dress. Their appearance should be descriptive of the type of character or the type of gender that a person has. That brings us to, to today. As you might have noted in the subtitle, Roles in the Church, R-O-L-E-S. As we have looked at all of those so far, it's certainly fair to say that that does raise the issue, given the beauty that associates to both the male and the female, and given the power in the Word of God respecting the dignity of each. That does not, though, set aside the fact that God does make distinction about the allowable or the inspired roles that each can occupy by His inspiration in the nature of the church. Let's begin that study by first very clearly setting forth in our mind one impressive and powerful point, namely the equality that associates in salvation with respect to both male and female. It is true, isn't it, that down through the centuries, especially the ancient times, there were those, perhaps of the Jewish community and otherwise, who specifically saw that women were of a position to have less access, at least in their mind, to blessedness in the sight of God. Friend, there is nothing further from the truth than that. When you and I open the pages of the New Testament, we find that men and women each are immortal spirits, each are in need of the salvation, and Christ died for each. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And Paul expressly states for us in Galatians 3 
the equality that each has, man and woman, with respect to the matter of salvation. In fact, beginning in verse number 26 of that chapter, Paul very clearly there said, You are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor free male. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Just as surely as he was speaking about those that had been baptized, he in the next verse then affirmed, you're all one in Christ Jesus. There is no longer bond or free. There is no longer male nor female. There is no longer Gentile nor Jew. Thus, females have open access to the same plan of salvation as a male does. It's the same pronouncement for each one. And that loveliness is perhaps also embedded in the words of 1 Peter 3, verse number 7. When on that occasion the inspired apostle Peter, joining that refrain, made the observation that to husbands they are to have respect and honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, that both might be the recipients of the grace of life. Thus we see that God doesn't frown or look upon women as lesser citizens in the sense that they are not of a position to have access to salvation. When Jesus said that a person must believe and be baptized. That was as needful and is so today as much for a female as it is for a male. We can thus see the equality with regard to salvation is perhaps highlighted in yet another rather interesting passage. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 11, on that occasion, in the heart of that discussion in which Paul wrestled with and set forth the divine nature of man and woman and their roles in the church, he said, the man is not without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Paul thus asserts a mutual dependency, a completeness that is not there if one does not have the other. Whether one considers the life in a family, both the male and female are needed to make that family as God would have it. Whether one considers the church, there are works that the man should be doing and there are works that the ladies, the women, ought to be doing. And if that isn't the case, the church will not be that which it ought to be. As one makes note about the character of this equality and salvation, let us be quick, however, to notice, and this is at the very bottom of that slide, that this statement does not mean that there are not distinctions in roles that might be occupied, that there might be distinctions in the works that God has specifically given males or females to do to the exclusion of the other. And that will be basically the thrust and theme of the remainder of our lesson time this morning. What might those distinctions be? What might those separations and responsibility be? Let's begin in this subject of authority. The matter of the said hierarchy that God has positioned and placed in his creation, and it is absolutely undeniable, for he stated it in his, in his word. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse number 3, we have a rather penetrating passage that identifies the matter of hierarchy, the specific subject of authority that God has embedded in his human creation. And in fact, it stretches even beyond that to the very character of heaven itself. In verse 3 of that text, Paul stated, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, 
and the head of Christ is God. And I've tried to state that in one of the opening statements of that slide, affirming this absolute authority in terms of hierarchy. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. That particular statement is, again, found in the Word of God, verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 11, and reminds us that our God is a God who desires and plans for things to be done orderly, properly, non-chaotically, and not in a way that where there's confusion or perplexion or difficulties associated with the proper organization. With that understanding of hierarchy, might we notice some of the implications of it, some of which I have chosen to write next. You might notice that as Paul began that discussion in chapter 11, he addressed this matter that related to this authority, and notice he didn't relegate it or, in fact, constrain it at that point to be only descriptive of the church. Notice it would persist in the home, and it would persist in society at large as well. Our interest is, of course, primarily today in asking about the nature of the church, but might we notice immediately what this states and implies? And might we not overlook it too quickly? There are some who might say, well, to say that man is the head of woman is to say that woman is inferior to man. That's not what the text says, is it? If that logic were utilized, notice it says that God is the head of Christ. Do we thus perceive Christ to be inferior in some way to God? Is it in some way that we should look upon him as lesser than what he ought to be? Well, by no means, for didn't Paul affirm for us in Philippians 2, verses 5 and 6, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Christ isn't inferior to God, it's merely that their roles are distinct. God the Father is the one, in fact, who is the overruling supreme sovereign of it all. Christ is the one who executed that marvelous and wonderful plan of salvation. And he, in fact, is the one who has called God more than once in the New Testament. So to say then that the woman is such that the man is her head is no indignity statement to her. But not only that, notice in the home how these matters are quickly affirmed by some other passages. We've just noted that in this general statement, he stated that the head of the woman is the man. Well, let's ask about the home environment just a moment. If we picture and portray the home as the New Testament sets it forth, how is the government of the home set up? How has God authorized it? Ephesians 5.22, in fact, says, Wives, be in subjection unto your own husbands. Does that not affirm and accord to this text we just noted, that their wives in subjection to... In Colossians 3.18, the wives are ordered, commanded by the God of heaven to be in subjection to their own husbands as is fit in the Lord. In 1 Peter 3 verse 1, likewise, wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. All of those statements echo the same thought. There is this same matter in the home in which the wife, the woman, is to be in subjection to the man. The husband is the head of the wife, isn't he? And isn't that what Paul affirmed in Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 25? And so it is in the home we see this same matter presented. But in addition to that character, might we notice that that authority vested in the man. And notice that we men, 
who refuse to take that headship do not then take that authority that God has delegated to us. And that is not a blessing to us or to our family. We do our wife a misservice. We do our children an injustice. When we fail to take that role of authority that God has vested in us. What's more, can we not also see in that same matter that husband by the same token, these texts to say that he has that authority in the home does not say he is a tyrant. In fact, how often might we as men remember, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. When Jesus, in fact, behaved or conducted himself toward that church, he gave everything sacrificial he had for its betterment, for her glory, for her establishment. He shed his blood that she might come into existence. We then as husbands, though we have the authority as vested by God in us and the family, that's not to say we behave toward her unlovingly or we behave toward her in an inappropriate or abusive or otherwise harmful fashion. That is the furthest thing from what the Scripture authorizes, isn't it? But to say that that matter is true in the home, let's look also somewhat further. Even in society, we find in the Bible that matters like that seem to be that which is presented. So much so that we can easily consider that doesn't mean, though, that the woman is not to work outside the home. If she wishes to do that, if that is the thing that she and her family choose to be the best, nothing inappropriate about that at all. So long as that is accomplished in a way of respectfulness toward the authority of men, and also in a way of humility toward her position and her office as invested in her by the God of heaven. All these matters do bring us to the church, don't they? When we consider the nature of the church globally, or this congregation here at Pippin, what would be the roles considerable for men as well as those for women? Certainly in the limited time that we have this morning, we will focus upon those for the women and try to understand more clearly and more thoroughly what the New Testament says about that. Likely it's true that there's a greater appreciation for the roles of men already might I ask you to consider with me two particular passages in which these matters are shown in great directness. And as we look at them, you might want to hold your finger in each one as we perhaps turn back and forth just a little bit in them. The first one we shall consider is in 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. Beginning in verse number 34 of that, pa of that chapter, the inspired apostle had these words to say. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 and 35. Let your women keep silence in the churches, for it is not permitted unto them to speak. But they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Throughout the centuries and perhaps even especially in the latter few decades, there have been those who have taken that passage in particular and used it to teach what I'm convinced is the furthest thing from what was on the mind of the apostle. In fact, there are those congregations not far from where you and I currently are sitting which will use that passage to teach it is inappropriate for a woman in a worship, in a Bible study class, so, so much as utter a sound other than in her singing. 
that again is not what that passage teaches. Some have used that to assert that it's inappropriate for a lady to ask a question in a Bible class. There have been those who have asserted that that text has been used to teach, again, many things which the context does not assert that it's teaching. If we again devote just a few moments to the passage, he says, let your women keep silence in the churches. Clearly, there is some kind of women, if you please, it's under the discussion and under the radar of who the inspired apostle is describing. Chapter 14 in 1 Corinthians is sufficiently lengthy. We'll not read the entirety of it. But who are the women that has been mentioned earlier in the chapter? Who are the ones that are the matters of his principal description? There were problems in the Corinthian congregation. And we have noted those on several occasions. The book of 1 Corinthians is a 16-chapter discussion of various and sundry problems. When we arrive at chapter 11 in that book, Paul, in fact, begins to address a number of particular issues that concern their worship and their assemblies in general and what took place during those assemblies. On various occasions, the church in Corinth, as the text implies on two occasions in this chapter, they would come together and during that time there would be an especial employment of various miraculous and spiritual gifts, principally involving two. One, Revelation, the other speaking in tongues. As inasmuch as that was taking place, we can begin to see what some of the issues were. These women under description were the wives of various prophets in the church in Corinth. And that which they were doing was taking to themselves the authority to disrupt their husbands speaking in tongues or statement of prophecy to the church. And her interruption of him was of course not resulting in the edification of the body. She was disrupting, she was being in essence one who was stopping the presentation of the prophecy, and so others were being harmed by it. It was in that kind of situation that Paul made this statement, let your women keep silence in the churches. So does that mean that period even till this day, a woman must not utter a single sound in the confines of a church building? Is that what that means? When you and I employ the word silent, we may well think so. But that is, again, not what the word means. In fact, if you look, that word is used more than once in that same chapter. The word is segeo. And it simply means to have reference to hold one's peace with respect to a certain situation. And we know that's true because the word is used roughly ten times in the New Testament. And if you look at them, I've only chosen to list you two of them. In Luke 9, verse 36, following the occasion of the transfiguration of Jesus, Peter, James, and John came down from that mountain, and the text says they segeoed what they had seen. Now, did that mean they didn't utter a single sound to anybody about anything? Or did that simply mean they did not share with anyone else what they had witnessed on that mountain? It means the latter, doesn't it? They still spoke and carried on conversations with friends and family and others. The word segeo there didn't mean they absolutely made no noise, no sound whatsoever. It's just as with respect to that event they had witnessed, they didn't tell it then. Well, notice in Acts 15, 12, another usage of segeo, and again, it clearly doesn't mean pure and absolute quietness or silence. 
it was only restricted, and so it is here in 1 Corinthians 14. To say that these women were to keep silent didn't mean that they couldn't make a sound. They could still sing. They could still, in fact, ask a question if that was appropriate. What this meant was she was not to usurp in such a way as to interrupt the disposition of the prophecy and to, in fact, cause the congregation not to be edified. That was not the appropriate time for her to be asking questions like that. In fact, verse 15 says, at home would be the time to ask that kind of question. Notice as verse 34 continues, it's not permitted unto them to speak, but they are commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. We've already learned then, in context, that that doesn't mean absolute, total, no noise whatsoever. Because after all, if that's what it meant, a woman would not be able to sing. How could it be thought that she is being silent if she's singing to the top of her lungs? Also, what would one say about a young woman who wished to be baptized? How could she make the confession if she couldn't make a sound? Or what about a mother who needs to calm a crying baby? Can she not make a sound by urging the child to be quiet? You see, to take that passage to an extreme position, as some have done, does a great injustice to it. Again, maybe the clear point of it all can be emphasized in 1 Timothy 2. For you see, that was the lesson text that Brother Colonel read earlier, and it's the one that sheds a great deal of light upon the text before us. As we turn to that next slide and look at some of the features of what was taking place in 1 Timothy, The idea in verses 8 through 14 of that chapter addresses a very similar situation to this one. And many have noted that the similarity is so striking that this passage might well be used to shed a great deal of light on the former one. So let's begin in verse number 8 of 1 Timothy 2 and let's read through verse 14 and listen again to the roles that men and women play and it says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. In briefness, I've listed a few thoughts that we should perhaps take careful note of as we reconsider those passages that we just now read. As it begins, we can see from the context of the entirety of this chapter that Paul is discussing matters related to the corporate assembly of the church. Those times when the church comes together, as we are now, as we are in Bible study periods, and even on occasion at other times, that we might come together as a called assembly, as a group of those professing faithfulness to the God of heaven. And in verse 8 he says, I will that men pray everywhere. No restriction then on the capability of a man leading a prayer. No restriction on the authorization that God has specified for a male to properly 
lead, conduct, and be the one directing a public prayer. But you'll notice that the word that's translated there, men, is in fact direct reference to a male. And hence, females are not included in that. And thus, there's a restriction placed by the authority of God that a woman is not to take that position, that a female is not to take that lead. As you can also see from that same passage, you notice that he goes on to help us see this. In other passages, we do see that women pray. A woman can pray. Thus, Paul must be affirming that it's the leading of the prayer that is she is not to do. She is not to take that authority, to take that lead, to take that initiative. That has been restricted from her, and it has been done so by the very character of the Word of God itself, isn't it? As you notice further, he identifies in verse number 11 as an explanation, let the woman learn in silence with all subjection. The especial point related to the woman learning in silence reminds us, and I've listed for you what is really the English standard rendition of that verse. I think it reads a little bit more smoothly for you and me. It affirms that the woman is to learn quietly with submissiveness. Now, let us use that carefully to appreciate, say, the behavior in a Bible study class. Do these passages bar a lady in earnestness and sincerity from humbly and appropriately asking a question? Of course not. She, in a submissive way, can appreciate her subjection to that male teacher and ask every bit as a, in a way that is of humility, for that relates to the word quietly. It's not inappropriate for a woman to ask a question in a Bible study class. But might we also notice what is thus affirmed in explanation in the next verse. Verse 12, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. I suffer not a woman to teach nor to exercise authority over the man. And in fact, that latter rendition is a better one from the original Greek. The word usurp is really not the best one to use. It is her exercise of authority over the male. That is what is being forbidden by the God of heaven. That is not her place. It's not her position. And in fact, no man can delegate that authority to her. Notice when the word usurp is in place, we somewhat have the impression that if she takes the authority, then that's not right. But if he gives it to her, it is. That is not true either. It is the fact of her exercising that authority. No man can delegate or give to her what God does not allow her to have. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to exercise authority over the man. Thus, we notice in explanation the following statement. Females are thus not to lead in the prayers or in any aspect that relates to a public discourse or the teaching mechanism of the church. For to do so is a, is a, is a direct violation of this passage that you and I have just read in 1 Timothy 2 verse 12. We find no exceptions anywhere in the New Testament with regard to that statement. And it does shed great light on that 1 Corinthians passage, doesn't it? As we appreciate then this restriction that's been placed on, on the female to this point, it does remind us, doesn't it, that this restriction may in our current culture 
and in our current world situations seem excessive. It may seem difficult, and it may in fact seem almost amazing. For you probably know as well as I from news stories and articles and newspapers and others that it seems in an increasing way women are being allowed to take the lead in worship services be it leading of singing, leading of prayers, waiting on table, delivering sermons, teaching Bible classes, or yea, any number of other things. In fact, there are even some places in which it is now being discussed at least as to whether or not a woman could be an elder. All of those things have been in fact removed from the regime of what God allows and blesses the woman with the capability and the authorization to do. In looking upon those passages, you might notice some comments in at the bottom that we should keep in mind as we contemplate this restriction on, on the roles that we've discussed. As we ponder, then our discussion or our characterization of these things, we ought never as a congregation here at Pippin or anywhere else give the impression to a community at large or to people who would fail to understand these restrictions that we take them trivially or that we take them lightly. These are every bit as much as a part of the Word of God as any other commandment of the New Testament. We are not thus at liberty to treat them as insignificant or to put them in a light where they might be called into question. For example, some have even wondered, in light of this, suppose a congregation had women who desired to be able to express themselves in a public way, but that would otherwise not be able to do so. Would it be authorized for that church to have two worship services, one for the men and one for the women on Sunday morning, so that the women can lead in the one and the men can lead in the other one? Friend, that would be a sin to so divide a congregation in such a way to merely in an artificial way to allow the women to lead in that way. For notice in Hebrews 10.25 it says, "...not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together." We must come together as the congregation at Pippin. That will be the only way in which we can offer the proper worship and the proper authority to exalt the name of God. And thus to conduct separate worship services for the men and the women would be the furthest thing from what one would find based on these passages that we've studied this morning. In addition to that though, as we come near the conclusion of our lesson, a very good question might well be, is that really meant for today? Honestly, why is this subordination present? Does God look down upon women for some reason? Is Paul a male chauvinist? I'm not sure how many articles that I have had the disprivilege of considering over the years in which some have asserted either directly or indirectly that Paul was anti-woman. Otherwise, he would never have included these passages like 1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Timothy 2 and even some other passages in which submission of the woman to the man is under discussion. In fact, as we again come near the conclusion of the lesson, what is the reason for the subordination of the woman to the man? Is it culturally related? Was it true in the first century but no longer true today? That's a good question. If you are of a habit to make notes, you might want to, in fact, think about these two reasons that are given in the, in the Scriptures for this position. And notice they are not arbitrary. 
At the very beginning of that slide, I simply ask, can one conclude that Paul was anti-woman? Can one conclude that he was a male chauvinist? Absolutely not. Let me read the verses again. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. The inspired apostle provides the reasons. In verses 13 and 14 of 1 Timothy 2, he begins the first verse there with the word for. That's a coordinating conjunction that expresses the reason for what has just been affirmed. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. The first reason as to the subordination of the woman to the man has to do with the order of creation. That is not culturally related in any way, shape, form, or fashion. It stretches far back beyond ancient Corinth. It stretches far back beyond ancient Rome. It stretches back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, the very dawn of time. And in that instance, notice some remarks. To say that Adam was first formed in Eve, we learn something rather amazing when we revisit some of those passages. When God saw the shortcoming and that Adam was alone... What was it he affirmed? I will make him and help meet for him. He didn't make Adam for Eve. He made Eve for Adam. The character of what was initially embedded in the creation that Adam was first formed and she was made for him, not the other way around. It is an appreciation that she was made as a suitable helper to him and for him. Notice also... In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 8, the same idea is affirmed yet again in the heart of the New Testament. In fact, in that verse, it reads as follows. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. We are thus of a position to learn again in the heart of that 1 Corinthians epistle, the same idea, and in 1 Timothy 2.13 is the text you and I just read. There was a preeminence of the man in the creation. He was fashioned first. And she was made for him. That gave him the position from the very dawn of time as being the authority. And we see it embedded not only in the home but here in the church as well. That's only the first reason. Note the second one. In verse 14, Paul went on to list the second reason as to this subordination. He says, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. We know that that reference takes us back to the Garden of Eden. It takes us back to when the tempter tempted Eve. She succumbed to the temptation. She gave to her husband Adam and he did eat. She ate of that forbidden fruit. And notice some of the statements that might well be made of it. Paul especially said, she was in the transgression, but he was not. That doesn't mean that Adam didn't sin. He too partook of that forbidden fruit. But in what way did they each partake of it? She was beguiled. She was deceived, but Adam was not. He went into it with his eyes wide open because she had already done it. He, due to his weakness for her, did that which he ought not to have done, but the tempter tempted her. And she succumbed, and forever that placed her in a position of not being the leader in the family, not being the one in the role of authority. 
Again, Adam was not deceived, but she was. And so we can appreciate that second reason reminds us even till this day that again that precludes her from occupying a position of exercising authority in the role of a corporate assembly, with it being teaching, in say in other activities that would be in authority positions. As we draw those ideas to its conclusion, might we notice that those statements I think can be fairly summarized in words like this. There is a marvelous equality in salvation with regard to male and female. Each have access to the gospel. Each can, in fact, entertain a home in heaven. Each have responsibilities and roles that they're to occupy in the church, but their roles are different. When it comes to the leadership in the corporate roles of the assembly, that's been restricted to the male. Be it any activity where the church has come together, she is not to exercise authority over the male. In order, in fact, to do so would be a violation, a transgression of these passages that we've studied. May we desire to so conduct ourselves and to encourage the conduct in others that would be becoming of God's teaching on these points and to appreciate that ladies can do many things in the service of their God, just that those positions of leadership are not that which they ought to be doing. That is something God has restricted to, the, to, to in fact, the men, to, to, in fact, the male. That is not meant to be a statement other than what God has declared. Paul, in fact, did not rest it upon his opinion. He didn't rest it upon his perception. He took the scene all the way back to the dawn of time and based it in the very fabric of what happened at the creation and what happened in the Garden of Eden. As we come to this point in our lesson today, having studied the dignity that accords to gender, either one, the nature of the responsibility to see the duties of them, maybe the question can be asked, where do you stand today in your service to God? Be you male or female, you need to obey the gospel in order to be saved. Once you have done that then, walk faithfully in accordance to the role given to you, men, women alike. Take the role God has given to you. Work to the best of your ability to, in fact, do that which God has commanded and be a blessing to others, your family, and the church. And in so doing, others will be greatly benefited by your faithfulness to the Lord. If we could be of assistance today in your initial obedience to the gospel, in that obedience, it's required of you to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess His name audibly, and to be baptized. If we could assist you in that, how lovely a day for you it would be. If you have become a Christian but no longer are a faithful one, come back to that first love. Have a desire to again be positioned by the side of the Master so that you too can understand the faithfulness of a home in heaven. And if we could pray for the forgiveness of public sin, after your repentance and confession, we'd be happy to do that. We would only ask that you let that be known if you would while together we stand and while we sing.